Um, we've already prayed, so uh, let me suggest we begin. I'm going to talk about ambition, and I want to begin by making a couple of opening remarks which are somewhat related to each other, but which will, I hope, set the stage for what uh, we'll be thinking about for the next few minutes. The first is to say that ambition is not the opposite of contentment. To think that ambition and contentment are opposites is to imagine that somehow they're at odds with each other, like they need to be kept in balance, like if you have a bit too much of one, you need to have a bit more of the other and kind of reduce your contentment and increase your ambition or whatever. So you might get the impression then that Pastor Neil comes up and tells you all to just calm down, calm down, and then pa- Pastor Jeffrey comes along and injects you all with caffeine and tries to sort of do you up again and you go home completely confused. Uh, contentment and ambition are not at all at odds with each other. And the easiest way to demonstrate this to you is to point you to the very passage which Pastor Neil highlighted for us at one point during his talk, First Timothy chapter 6. You're going to have to have your Bibles uh, open and your fingers nimble uh, to the point of getting paper cuts in the next 25 minutes or so because I'm afraid that's what might happen. In this passage, uh, one of the most famous biblical passages about contentment There's great gain in godliness with contentment. Like Job, we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content. And then there's the the warning about all these desires that could destroy you in verses 9 and 10. You then find a remarkable, well, you might think it's a contrast, but it's not a contrast. Beginning in verse 11. As for you, O man of God, and listen to all the verbs, all the things that Timothy is charged to do. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold, and so on and so forth. In other words, the activity of vigorously pursuing something, vigorously striving for something, being ambitious for something, can't be in contrast with contentment, or certainly can't be opposed to it, because Paul finds no tension at all in mentioning them both in the same text. Rather, we had to think of contentment and ambition as complementary virtues, both of which need to be pursued wholeheartedly. Learn contentment. But they have different objects, and they are to be pursued in different ways. And it is those different objects in different ways that we need to get clear just before we begin. And so my second um, uh, introductory comment is just to clarify as much as I can very briefly what contentment and ambition are. We might say, as Pastor Neil has already kind of pointed us towards, contentment is the glad acceptance of what God in his providence has given us when we already have it. Here I am. Here's what I have. Here's my circumstances. I'm not where I thought I would be. I don't have what I ever thought I have. But I've learned to be content, gladly to accept from the hand of the living God what he's given to me. And when contentment gets twisted, it doesn't become ambition. When contentment becomes twisted, it becomes laziness and sluggardliness and apathy and being content, quote-unquote, with ungodliness. 
That's what happens when contentment goes wrong. So if that's contentment, the glad acceptance of what God in his providence has given me. Ambition, we might say, is the enthusiastic striving for what God in his providence seems to have put before us, but we don't yet have. Does that make sense? So you're here you are in this position in life where God has placed you. I'm content to be here. And now I see this path opened up before me with opportunities and the gifts, the talents, to quote somebody, that God has given me. And I vigorously and enthusiastically strive to attain that which is good, which God in his providence has set before me. That's ambition. And when ambition goes wrong, it's directed to wrong ends or with wrong motives. It becomes greed or lust or coveting or thirst for power. So here we have godly ambition and godly contentment and ungodly ambition and ungodly contentment. And what we need is both of these maxed out on both of them. And if someone lacks contentment, actually what they have is not too much much ambition. What they have is ungodly ambition. And if somebody lacks ambition, what they have is not too much contentment, but they have ungodly contentment. Now, if that's what ambition and contentment are, how does the Bible encourage ambition in particular? And what should we be ambitious for? And there are lots of ways of exploring this. Um, As I was thinking about this, I I thought uh, perhaps one place to start is just with a brief look at texts that are specifically about ambition. There are three texts in the New Testament, at least. And there's more, you know, we'll get to the Old Testament in a few minutes' time. But three texts in the New Testament specifically use the, the verb to, um, to be ambitious. First Thessalonians 4, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 5. And it's interesting to know what they're directed towards. I love the New International Version translation of First Thessalonians 4, actually. Um, about brotherly love, we don't need to teach you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, see he's setting before them that to which they should strive. We urge you to do this more and more. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Make it your ambition to work hard with your hands. Make it your ambition to mind your own business. Make it your ambition, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and you wouldn't be dependent on anyone. It's really intriguing, like that. We could easily imagine that somebody was content to lead a quiet life and work hard with his hands lacked ambition. Not at all. And Paul says, in the long run, in the long term, that man is the man who will be respected. Not dependent on anybody in the sense that he's able to provide for others, doesn't constantly look out for handouts. Minding his own business and working hard with his hands and a fantastic role model for everybody else. Now, Romans 15, 20. Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Well, there's a thought. (laughs) Paul, in some ways in a unique situation, nonetheless, exemplifies in himself the biblical mandate to reach a lost world. And then 2 Corinthians 5, Paul again, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, or literally, we make it our ambition to please him. 
So there'll be three bullet points to start with, wouldn't they? If our ambition was to mind your own business, work hard with your hands, be able to provide for those who are dependent on you so you're not dependent on anybody else, reach the world with the gospel and do everything to please Jesus Christ, those would be some really pretty fruitful ambitions, wouldn't they? But besides the specific vocabulary of ambition, it's important to recognize that in relation to every uh, biblical theme, the Bible's teaching on a particular subject is not limited merely to those texts that mention the word. Uh, Word studies have their place, but they always give an incomplete picture. And what we really need to start building a a more full-orbed biblical uh, understanding of what ambition is, is to Well, really what we want is what scholars sometimes call a biblical theology, that is, to see how this theme develops and unfolds throughout the whole scriptures. We want to begin with creation and see how the theme of ambition develops throughout the Bible. And, um, well, since I've only been given three hours for this talk, I thought we'd probably better restrict ourselves to Genesis. And then I've realized, no, hold on, 20 minutes. Um, So we'll start with Genesis, and this will sketch some of the themes which, interestingly, start to emerge a little bit later on in more detail. We begin um, uh, with Genesis 1, 26 to 28, very familiar passage. I I find myself going back to this Old Testament text probably more often than any other. You know it very well. God set before his creatures, Adam and Eve, a highly ambitious project. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them rule. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything in it. Theologian Palmer Robertson has highlighted in formal terms that God sets before man and woman in the early chapters of Genesis three ordinances which are embedded in the structure of the created world, which we are to be ambitious to pursue. Work, marriage, and Sabbath. You see work and marriage just in this text here. To subdue the earth, Adam, requires that diligent commitment to whatever your vocation is. I was talking with one guy uh, um, in the break just about, you know, how's your work going? And it's one of the interesting things is sometimes you get to that point in your career where you've, you can do this. You know, you're, you're past the first five or ten years or something. And, and would it be right to start thinking maybe I should move on? Well, perhaps it would be. Maybe other opportunities will present themselves. That's Okay. And yet at the same time, how easy it would be to lose the ambition to strive and do the do the very best at what you have, by God's grace, become better at. Some people do the same job all their lives. Of course they get used to it. But it ought not to stop them striving to grow and become ambitious, should we say, to... Keep setting before the watching world an example of admirable, faithful, cheerful, joyful Christian service. Of course, some of you young people, you're not yet working. Well, you think you're working because you're like you're at school or something. How little they know, eh? Um, And how easy it is to imagine your teenage years as a kind of uh, a period of Studied relaxation before the hard labor sets in. No, it is not. 
This is the training before the battle. And many's the soldier that wished he went to the gym once or twice more when he actually gets out onto the battlefield. I wonder how many people, when they're first thrown into their first or second year at college or their first job in the workplace, just wished they'd just studied a bit harder in the algebra course or bothered to work harder at their writing skills or really knuckled down and done the very best they could when they were studying in these times of luxury where your parents are providing all these things for you, like food, so that you don't have to provide them for yourselves. What a precious time to prepare for work. Marriage, of course, is the second of these ordinances built into the fabric of the created world. And what is a man to do? Well, a man is to be a picture of Jesus. The, the world will only be filled and subdued to the glory of God when it is filled with godly Christian men who are passionately committed to their wives and nobody else's and who will think and labor and, and love and give and sacrifice and it's really tragic. It seems to me much of our contemporary uh, Christian discussion about the relationships between husbands and wives has been marred by a kind of counter-reaction to the feminization of our age, where masculinity has been looked down upon, so that now the very idea of servant leadership is regarded as a kind of egalitarian tagline which is somewhat ironic given how Jesus describes what he came to do in Mark 10. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Would that we would get back to what Scripture actually says men should be. Leaders by sacrificing. Leaders by serving. And I honestly don't care how the discourse has been polluted in some parts of the public square with childish pendulum swings from uh, the doormat husband to the domineering husband and back and forth. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And wives, um, what is it, First Peter 3? The inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The vocabulary of beauty is applied in the scriptures to the church, which Christ is beautifying, sanctifying, making her holy. Think of um, Song of Songs, for example, some of Isaiah's prophecies. And the inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I remember somebody once saying, before you, um, before you marry for looks, take a good long look at your future mother-in-law. I mean, thinking, that's really rude. As it happens, my mother-in-law is a beautiful lady, I thought at the time. And I'm convinced I'm right. But it's just really interesting. And not so much in this context because of what a man might look for, but what a woman might aspire to. What do you want to be? Ready for that man when he comes along is what you want to be. Or beautiful for him now that he's your husband. And then the Sabbath, the third of these ordinances built into the fabric of the created order by which life is to be structured. And it's often 
struck me that um, you can't just preach you can't just preach a sermon on the Sabbath and then refer people back to it in 20 years' time. You can do that with head coverings, okay? Uh, like, there are some issues where, you know, you don't need to be mentioning this all the time. Or maybe some people think you do. I don't mean to be rude. Um, anyway, but, oh, no, how did I get onto that subject? Um, off script is how I got onto it. Um, there are some subjects where, you know, we, we can state the case, and then if we want to have a conversation about it, we can go back, and then we can think about it. But Sabbath or I think more properly, that the the Christian Lord's Day, needs to be the continual subject of our attention because every year, every six months, almost every week in some households, we will face renewed demands upon that time which the Lord has given to us so that we may give it to him. There's a whole bunch of practical questions that arise here. What is it appropriate to do on the Lord's Day? But so often we sort of turn it around and what we really want to do on the Lord's Day is whatever demand has been placed on us by our leisure pursuits or by our work or by whatever else has happened. And then we try and figure out how I can squeeze church into all this. Well, there's a church somewhere near there where I was thinking of going. And my concern is in the first instance with the mindset that has flipped things around. And again, I wonder how many of our lives would be subtly different or maybe remarkably different if... We really gave ourselves to the worship of the living God. And then, well, let's let everything else fit in around that, shall we? Of course, um, the Sabbath is also for rest. It's for giving rest to others. And the Old Testament Hebrews were to give rest to their slaves and their cattle. Um, men, we're certainly to give rest to our wives. And it's sometimes difficult. I've, I've preached about this before. And found myself preaching to myself, because Nicole cooks far better than I do, far more of the time, mercifully. And one of the problems is to kind of try and pull the momentum out from her, because she just kind of rolls forward. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, boom, carry straight on it. And I wonder whether I could work harder at giving her rest from her regular labor. I certainly think some of our, uh, or let me put it more mildly <laughs> for once. Um, is it possible, um, older teenage men and women. Is it possible that uh, your mother would enjoy the lion that you indulge on Sunday mornings and with a bit more energy, a bit more effort, a bit more diligent attention to the God-given rest that you are to give to others? Your mum might actually have a bit more energy during the week. It's funny, the Israelites would be sinning if they didn't give rest to your cows. How many teenage boys give rest to their mums? So, embedded in the structure of creation are these three priorities. And the rest of scripture can be read as an exposition of these priorities. And so, had we world enough and time, we could explore all the different ways in which we are to be ambitious to strive towards these opportunities that the Lord has placed before us in relation to work and worship and marriage and family life and everything else that's bound up with that. Um, but given the, just the few minutes we have left, I want to just name three people from the beginning of Genesis, which will set us on the trajectory to think about this, and then we'll have a word about Jesus at the end, because, well, we ought at least to mention his name, oughtn't we? Uh, think first about Abel, Genesis chapter 4. 
perhaps exemplifying in practical terms the ambition to worship God in faithfulness. It's very striking, isn't it, that the first man to worship God faithfully in the scriptures died for it. Remind you of anybody? And you know the uh, episode. Um, in the course of time, Genesis 4 verse 3, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And scholars debate for ages about why the Lord accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. And the his answer is obvious. It's right. Well, Cain is thinking, okay, what is it? Oh, offering to the Lord carrots today, I suppose. Right? Here we are. Firstborn of his flock, says Abel. Fat portions. Can you see? This is in practical terms now. Costly. Demanding. Means that he can't do something else with that prize lamb. Because he wants to worship the living God. And so Abel exemplifies in real historical practical terms what it means. It's costly to worship God. It is actually costly. Some of you are discovering this. It is. Because there are so many other things that you, quote unquote, could do on the Lord's Day. I remember a friend of mine, Nick Pike, that all the world knows his name, great guy, one of the deacons and then an elder at Emmanuel in London before they moved away. And he opened a restaurant in the early 2000s in the middle of the worst recession to hit Britain in, in living memory. Um, never opened on a Sunday. Not once. Um, everyone thought he was mad. <laughs> like He opened it in a beautiful little market town, Harpenden, just north of London. Within a year or two, it was the number one restaurant in Harpenden on TripAdvisor. You know, everyone, everyone was talking about it. All of his staff got a day off on Sunday. Unheard of in the hospitality industry in Britain. It's not like Chick-fil-A where, you know, everyone, this is kind of normal. Uh, unheard of. He's just lost, probably on paper, 25, 30% of the income producing time in the week. And he's now got three or four restaurants, I forget, <laughs> inside 20 years. You see, because he made it his priority in practical terms. He stepped out in faith. Speaking of faith, second, Enoch. Enoch's an interesting character. I don't think we say much about Enoch. We probably don't say as much as we could. He appears in um, Genesis 5, as you know, in the long catalogue of Adam's descendants, which is remarkable because uh, it's a catalogue of their deaths. You have this sonorous refrain, so-and-so had this many children when he was this years old, and then all the days of Enosh were this many years, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And you get to Enoch, lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, (laughs) taking on the names on a Saturday morning, come on, slow down, Methuselah, he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. No, he didn't die. Why did he not die? (laughs) In the fifth chapter of the Bible, we are being taught that everlasting life comes to those who walk with God. Huh. And to walk with God, of course, uh, you'll be familiar with this, it's it's a metaphor of ongoing commitment, to walk in certain ways, It's not just a one-off decision. It's the daily commitment of his life. Enoch would have been known as the man who walked with God in one way or another. its He's just the guy whose life shouted and screamed and telegraphed this commitment. Someday, 
You know, someday somebody's got to preach at your funeral. What do you want them to say? Charles walked with God. Ben walked with God. Audie walked with God. Wouldn't that be a thing to say? Let all the world know that this man, this woman, never a day went past where you couldn't see their active commitment to the living God. You see, we haven't said the word ambition for a while. Can you see how we're talking about ambition? It is the the driving impulse that will, it will, by God's grace, create this in you. Don Carson once said, nobody ever drifted into godliness. Fantastic. Pastor Neil had like half a dozen one-liners today. I wrote them all down, but that one stuck in my head from 25 years ago. No one ever drifted into godliness. The people who are godly decided to pursue it. And by the wonder of the grace of the Spirit of God, he blessed them with it. Then finally, well, almost finally, Noah. God's covenant with Noah, interestingly, and you you know this, If again, Palmer Robertson's book has uh, a few uh, pages of this in it. The covenant with Noah after the catastrophe of the flood highlights the purpose of God to reach the whole world. Um, chapter 9, verse 12, uh, God said, This is the sign of the covenant, the sign of the, the rainbow, that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. The covenant with Noah, in other words, is one that is made having a mind to the future of the world and the salvation of the future of the world. You get the same emphases in verses 16 and 17. Whenever I see the bow, I'm going to remember my covenant between me and you and all life that's on the earth. No surprise in um, 2 Peter 3, where uh, Peter uh, alludes to the flood in the days of Noah. That's the point um, at which he transitions to um, his remark, the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise to come and judge the world, but he's patient, wanting everyone to come to repentance. See, the flood in the days of Noah is God's guarantee that he won't destroy the world again in a flood. He'll wait and wait and wait patiently to give time for people to come to repentance. And how many people are there out there who need more time? We, we were thinking about this actually a lot in recent months about, uh, in relation to our conversations about what to do in the church here. Um, Sunday mornings are busier than this. And um, we've been thinking, as you know, we talked about it in our, our members meeting a couple of weeks ago, how should we best handle the growth here? And it seems to me that one of the most fruitful ways of answering that question is not to start with where we are but to start with the telos, if you like, the goal of God's covenant with Noah. He wants to reach the whole world. Well, according to the 2020 census, there are 7.6 million people in the DFW area, in the metro area. It's the third or fourth, I think it's the fourth largest metropolitan area in the whole United States. Now, we can't just ignore that. To, to find a way of structuring our ministry to the world so that we're able to provide churches for the Spirit to bring people into will require us to, well, do a whole bunch of things. And you may want to ask us about some of those things in the Q&A time. Suffice it to say that to have that focus will be cutting with the grain of God's purposes 
having his ambitions for the world. And this plan is going to be brought to completion in Christ. Um, the author and executor of the most ambitious program ever executed in the history of humanity, and the one upon whom that plan has focused and terminated. God has exalted him, Philippians 2, to the highest place and given him the name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what has now happened and what will be happening through history. That is the most ambitious program you could possibly imagine. How are we to take our part in that? Well, you roll back about six verses. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but literally emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. The way in which we engage in this plan of Christ and play our part in all these other aspects of what it means to be ambitious, to see the glory of God reach every corner of the globe, is first by making ourselves nothing, emptying ourselves of all of us, all of our dignity, all of the things that might make people look at us like If we had eyes to see, you'd look at God the Son in eternity and be totally blown away. We empty ourselves of all of those and clothe ourselves in a veil of humble flesh like Christ. Well, we are humble flesh like Christ. Let us not forget that we are. And let us not forget that we are to be humble flesh like Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of participating in your purposes. We pray for the appropriate, ambitious, zealous longing to see your kingdom grow, your purposes worked out, your church thrive, and godliness and wisdom and maturity and fruitfulness to flourish among us. And therefore, we pray, make us humble. And grant us the refreshment of your spirit that we may see your purposes come about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.